Welcome to Work Ethics, a series of conversations about building a better future. I'm Tom McCormick, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. My guest today is Katie Scheuer. Katie is a learning designer, career coach, and remote work advocate. In 2019, she quit her job to travel and work remotely in learning development and began training teams and companies in remote-first practices and asynchronous collaboration. In our first attempt at this podcast recording, I was name dropping a lot. So I have this thing that I like to do when I host a party. I invite people that I'm not even friends with, but they're people that I want to be friends with, or I think my friends would get along with. And so folks will just show up to the party and be like, how do you know, Kate? Oh, I met her at an open house or I met her at a story slam, but then they become very good friends because everybody is excited to connect with someone new. And I think how we originally connected was in some way like this digitally on LinkedIn. It was like we somehow our circles overlapped and we were like, oh, that person's connected with a lot of cool ideas and people like we should connect. And we're both career coaches. So we're both oriented that way. And I, I know I've spent an inordinate amount of time trying to convince people that this is worthwhile just to like meet cool people and reach out and immerse themselves in different networks of people that are going to help them learn. That's the perfect little snippet. That was like, on like really fancy podcasts when they have the little snippet at the beginning. That's uh-huh. like, <laughs> we did it without even trying. And I don't even have to do any editing. So here we go. <laughs> anyway, let's exactly. back up. Let's back up and you can introduce yourself to everybody and tell us a little sure. bit about what brought you to this podcast and the work that you do. Sure. So I've been a career coach and learning designer for many years, but in 2019, I quit my job. I wanted to travel. I was really inspired by the international professionals I was working with at the time. Yeah, I wanted to travel. And what that actually meant was working remotely. And I didn't have any knowledge of remote work. I wasn't even looking for remote jobs. I thought, oh, I guess I'll have to teach English. I'll have to find a job when I get to where I'm going. And at the time I thought it might be Germany, but it actually turned out to be Portugal. My partner got into a grad program. And so we were moving overseas and I was at the same time exploring roles in learning development. So I was fortunate to join a wonderful organization called Workplaceless, which is a remote work training company about six months before the pandemic. And it was a wonderful world and community. There were small distributed teams doing this work, talking about remote work advocacy. And then COVID came and the world went remote and my world shifted too. Awesome. In our first take of this podcast, when we couldn't capture our audio, (laughs) we were talking about learning design and instructional design. And I'm interested in exploring a little bit more like how that translates into the work that you've done. So I think it's a universal skill set of helping people learn and acquire new information and ideas. And so I'm wondering what you've learned and what's been helpful to you in applying that remote work advocacy, async work, et cetera. That's such a great question. So I was a career coach and attended a conference for international education professionals at the University of Maryland. And a woman stood up on stage. Her name was Nicole Merrill. And she talked about upskilling. But the way she talked about upskilling blew my mind. And I followed her on LinkedIn for a very long time. We've never met in real life, but she's similar to you, an internet friend of mine, somebody (laughs) or someone that I want to be my internet friend. Watching her journey, she went from, she had so many different careers. You have to look her up, but I saw how she pivoted from content creator to travel writer to 
she was a career coach at Yale. And then she went and became a conversation designer. I was like, I want to do that. She also worked in international. She did so many things. I was like, I want to do that. Like you and I talk about Tom, we need to practice what we preach. So I started upskilling while I was still a career coach. First, I was going on websites to learn about learning design. So the association for talent development, kind of old school, traditional approach to starting to upskill is what is the terminology I need to learn? Always start there, start with the language. So that was very helpful. And I also took this great LinkedIn learning course about instructional design by Jolie Miller. Then I followed her on LinkedIn. She actually works at LinkedIn. So it's a little bit meta. And about six months after I completed her course, Jolie posted a, a message to the her community saying, I'll offer free career coaching to whoever wants it. And so I put my hand up and I said, Jolie, I would love to talk to you. She was such a powerful influence to me to feel confident about shifting into a new space and a new career. And she just really just gave me so much just from a short conversation and made some introductions. And sometimes when you're in a career pivot, you need a bit of encouragement. So she was one of those people. Nicole was one of those people. And the first remote person, remote worker I spoke with was Brie Reynolds at Flex Jobs. And she was a remote career coach. She connected me with the Workplaceless team. So it was through conversations and then also developing skills that I figured out my path and ultimately got hired because of my subject matter expertise in career development. And I was hired to design a career course. And I remember my first week at work. Tammy, the CEO of Workplaceless said, okay, Katie, what's your approach to learning design? And I said, um, <laughs> because I hadn't learned the principles or theories. So sometimes questions that people ask of you are really prompts to go out and learn. I had a, another similar experience when I was tapped very early on in my world, in my role as a remote worker, and someone contacted me for a head of remote job. And this is before anyone was talking about head of remote. This was a very forward thinking organization. And she said, tell me about your approach to assessment. And I hadn't heard of Kirkpatrick's levels of training evaluation, which is really common and standard in the world of L and D learning and development, but I didn't know about it. So again, questions can be great reminders or prompts for us to go out and pursue more knowledge. You just queued up like four future podcasts in that answer. I'm like, we could do an L&D podcast. We could do one about just like assessment. We could do one about remote. We could do one yeah. so many different things. You and, and I, I have, have a lot, I think, of overlap in our interests. Yeah, I'm already like getting way ahead of myself. I want to break down what you said. So Tammy asked you that question. And at the time, you kind of were like, oh, I need to learn a lot of things about this to have a <laughs> fleshed out answer that, you know, that I feel confident about. I'm curious if you were asked that question today. How would you respond? And I'm assuming it would be a lot more robust of an answer and you have a lot of insights. So I'd love to hear how you'd respond. Sure. So as a learning designer, it's somewhat of a broad term. And sometimes you're designing an e-course, sometimes you're designing a workshop, or sometimes you're designing a huge rollout with combination of synchronous and asynchronous learning experiences. But in general, the approach that I use is called ADDIE, which stands for Analyze design, develop, implement, and evaluate. 
And that's a model that's very common among instructional designers, but it's also very similar to other change management frameworks or design frameworks in general. It's pretty commonly used. And that was confirmed when I completed a LinkedIn learning course about instructional design. So when you're starting to see patterns across multiple sources, then you know you're on the right track. Yeah, that's a, I, I work with a lot of UX designers and researchers myself on the job search, and I'm fascinated by how there's this design process that you just referred to that can apply to all these different types of work and different industries mm-hmm. and different fields. And it's really all the same. It's like some form of <laughs> data collection and synthesis, and then like putting out some sort of a product and then testing it and then iterating on that. And that's, yeah. you can, and there's lots of different frameworks, acronyms, methodologies, but it, it all kind of boils down to that general principle. And you can apply that to anything like this podcast we're doing, I'm going to probably go back and learn some things and then apply it to the next one. So that's just, that's been a fun topic to just think about philosophically. So let's get into a little bit more of the work that you've done. You just alluded to it a little bit. What kinds of projects were you working on? And I know remote and asynchronous was part of it, but I imagine there's also a culture shift that has to come with it or a mindset shift for teams that you've worked with. So I'm just curious to get into some of the weeds on what you developed and what you learned along the way for some of your clients. Sure. So you know, when I was making a transition from career coaching to the world of learning design, I actually realized I'd been a learning designer my entire professional career. And the difference, and the reason I didn't recognize myself as a learning designer is because the language was different. In the coaching world, you're talking about students. In learning design world, you might be talking about learners. So very subtle shifts. And as you know, Tom, as a career coach, when you're trying to translate your skills to an audience, it's learning the terms that they use and what is the language. So in the remote work context, the same thing was happening. So many companies might've already been practicing really wonderful remote first best practices, meaning that they were prioritizing remote workers, but they didn't know it and they didn't necessarily recognize it. I think the term hybrid companies wasn't widely used pre-pandemic. I'd need to go on Google and track to see who was using it. I'm sure some forward thinking groups, but it certainly was new to me, that new terminology. So one of the very first things that I do when I'm working with a client is make sure that they understand the terms I'm using. This new language blew up for everyone. So sync versus async. When we say, oh, I'm going to have a synchronous conversation, that means in real time, we're going to talk and connect, whether it's in person or whether it's over video. But I think asynchronous collaboration or asynchronous communication, again, something people do a lot, but when you have a term for it, you can actually start to create philosophies, practices, habits, because we all are talking about the same thing because we understand the same definition. Yeah. Language is important. I come back to that all the time in a lot of different contexts. So in all of the work that you've done, I imagine you've come across all sorts of misconceptions, limiting beliefs, barriers that you need to chip away at in organizational cultures or with Mm -hmm. leaders. And I'm curious if you could speak to some of those, what they are, and then also, you know, how you push back against them or how you help people broaden their, their horizons when it comes to remote and asynchronous work. So When the pandemic started, I think a lot of people went to their comfort zone. So everyone was used to going into the office environment, spending time together in a conference room to make decisions. And as we know, everyone hopped on Zoom to try to replicate that experience of being together in a synchronous 
real-time environment. And even that term sync, synchronous, we might not have used that previously. So learning terminology is foundational to starting to break apart some of these misconceptions. So we saw that trend, but the reality is if you look at the really successful distributed companies, for example, GitLab, they have a remote first approach to work, but they also have an approach towards documentation. So there are remote companies out there and they call themselves remote first, but they're relying still on synchronous meetings. A lot of time spent together on a Zoom meeting, on a video call, and your calendar gets filled up with meetings all day long. But the organizations that I really appreciate have an async first approach to remote work. And so what that means is instead of relying on time together, you might be completing tasks at a totally different time of day than your coworker. So for example, you live in Budapest, your subordinate, your team members, they maybe live in California. You're probably not going to overlap very often, maybe a couple times a week for a team meeting, but you're going to rely instead on first documentation. So GitLab does this really well. They have a wonderful documentation culture and you can actually Google GitLab and see their handbooks available to the public. So there's a lot of transparency in documentation. If organizations give people access to this information, Workers don't need to rely on their bosses or teammates' time to get what they need, to get the information or the resources they need. They can use a search function. They can go into their project management tools like Asana or ClickUp to get details about a project task, to get information about the deadlines and expectations. And so when you're leveraging these tools and you're using documentation, you're also removing those check-ins with managers where they're saying, hey, give me a status update on this project. Like, where are you at? Nope. You don't need to do that. You can update it in these tools and these systems. And I think one misconception about async work is that it's for only tech companies or remote workers, but it's not. Everybody can benefit from asynchronous practices because it actually creates more flexibility for schedules. Even if everybody was coming into the same office and there were team meetings every single day, there would be creation of flexibility so that you can come in, attend your meetings, head out when you need to. And I think a lot of hybrid teams are starting to experiment with this. So something else I'm looking for in addition to async practices in good organizations is flexibility, flexible schedules on behalf of the individuals, right? Not Sometimes you look at job descriptions and they say, we want you to be flexible, right? Meaning the individual needs to adapt to the organization or client's needs. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for organizations to allow flexibility for their employees, because that's ultimately what's going to create autonomy in the workers and people want freedom. That's so much a part of this remote work movement. People want to live and work when they want and where they want. And I think a lot of the best organizations are really embracing that. You said so much there, and I was trying to mentally catalog it all. One thing is... I. You mentioned a GitLab, and I know there. I've noticed some of the leading companies are like basically publishing all their documentation, publishing all their strategies, their handbooks, which is really great for other companies that are trying to mimic some of these best practices. And a couple other ones that come to mind for me are Remote and Oyster and Doist. Do you have any other I love, ones? I love Doist. Uh, Chase Warrington writes incredible posts. He's been writing a series. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm sure you follow him, but he's been writing a series of how he's been planning his remote retreats. And I was just scribbling, taking notes, like it's fabulous information that he's sharing. So LinkedIn, to be honest, is a great hive mind. That's where you and I met. Yeah, yeah. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and I the only 
problem is I'm like, I can't learn all of this. There's too much <laughs> good stuff to, I have this document where I'm collecting like articles and people to follow up with and blog posts and all this different stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's an hour long lecture on that topic. When would I have time to do that? But it's an unbelievable source of information. And then my other question was, you mentioned freedom and people want flexibility and they want more control and autonomy, which I think is absolutely true and wonderful. I think from a leadership perspective, you often hear, and I've gotten into some back and forth on LinkedIn on this topic. They're like, people want it all these days. It's like, it's sort of like a kids these days thing where it's just like, they don't want to work. They want to work three hours a week from an island in the Caribbean. And, you know, it's this like mentality that people are not actually working, not actually as productive. And I don't agree with that, but I'd love to hear, I'm sure you've run into some version of this in your work. And I'm curious how you respond to that and how you present the counterpoints. It is so funny because when I worked in an office, I was a career coach and I spent all my time behind closed doors in one-on-one -on -one conversations all day long. And for a decade, nobody knew what I was doing or what I was talking about. And in my remote world, my bosses and colleagues could see everything I was working on, all of my work. They could see in real time what documents I was working on, what tasks I was completing because we were using tools like Google Docs and ClickUp and just tracking everything. So it makes me laugh a little bit because I don't know, it wasn't my reality certainly, but it does come down to trust, first of all, and also a comfort with how to use this technology, not in a way to track people, but as a way to open everyone up to increased collaboration. I think that's true for me. What have you experienced personally? Once I started to get a taste of remote work, and I don't think I'm as advanced at asynchronous work as you, because I'm, I'm still doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one calls with people that I'm coaching, although I am starting to build resource libraries and things that I can share. And that's been really great. I think trust is the big one. And I, for me personally, with productivity, which is often where this conversation goes, you're going to lose productivity because people are going to slack off. Number one, if you don't have the right like performance metrics in place, it's the fault of leadership. If they're like, if we don't know what you're doing, unless you're in the office, you're like, do we ever know what you're doing? Just like you mentioned with your example. And then if somebody's really phoning it in, pun intended, with their work, that I feel like that's going to become apparent very quickly. People are going yes. to be dropping balls or things aren't going to be done or it's going to be, where's the document? Why weren't you in the meeting? I'm, I've been working remotely for about seven, seven years or so. And it would be so obvious if somebody was literally not working, if they were just like exactly. doing their own thing. We would have been like, where's so-and-so? Why aren't they here? And yeah. then we would have had a conversation and they, either they would have been like, yeah, I haven't been working. I need to up my game. Or they would have been like, I have, here's all the stuff. And then we would establish better, like you said, documentation practices or communication practices. So I, to me, it's a non-issue and it's more just a comfort with leadership. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, Leadership doesn't, they just like the idea of people being in the office. It just feels good to their heart, you know? And you're like, that's like the least scientific thing I've ever heard. It's just, it just feels warm and fuzzy to have people sitting around in their cubicles. So I think it forces leadership out of their comfort zone as well to think about how do we lead an organization? And obviously to me, when you're talking about like retention and this war for talent that we're hearing about, everybody wants autonomy. That's a universal human need or desire. Everybody wants more time to do focused work as opposed to having to interact with other people. And then I think the question that arises that out of that is that when is synchronous work good? When is it beneficial? When mm -hmm. does it contribute? Because you're not just doing deep work 40 hours a week and never talking to anyone ever. There's going to be some level of synchronous communication. So in your experience, how do you selectively use that effectively and in a way that doesn't burden people. I'm curious how you've seen that done. Exactly. It's 
absolutely a balance, whether you're in an office environment, a hybrid work environment where there's a combination of remote work and co-located in-person work, finding that balance of synchronous and async time for that deep focused work is really critical. And it depends on the role, right? If you're a sales professional or a coach like yourself, you're going to have a lot more sync time, but even in that, and I've worked with our sales team and in my own coaching practices have shifted toward a blended meeting structure. And so a blended meeting is an approach that you can take to reduce the amount of sync time. And so it's not all or nothing. It's not, oh, we're never meeting anymore. But instead of scheduling a 60 minute sales call or a 60 minute coaching call, you can schedule a 25 minute call. And I say 25 minutes because you need that five minute transition time from one meeting to the next and assign pre-work. 30 minutes of work to be completed in advance for a sales meeting. That might be, Hey, take a look at this video and answer the survey so that you're coming to this conversation, already having answered my 10 questions for a coaching conversation. That might be read these four pages about informational interviews, build out your task list and complete an informational interview. That way, when you come to the conversation, we can talk about how it went, what you did well, or what you need to improve, or even we're going to cancel this meeting and collaborate on questions in a Google doc, right? And you find pretty quickly what needs to be in a meeting and what needs to be a sync. And Workplaceless has a wonderful, we call it the placeless taxonomy. It's a visual that shows you what tasks should be best completed async and what tasks really should be completed in a synchronous either video-based or in-person environment. So it's a pyramid, very similar to Bloom's taxonomy. At the top of the pyramid, connecting, number one. If we're going to spend time together on a Zoom meeting, we probably should be spending time asking each other about personal things, having time, even on a phone call. I like to call them walkie-talkies where you get outside. You and I have done one. We get outside and walk and chat. Those synchronous moments are really important for connecting and then also decision-making, kind of those bigger, meatier tasks that we do in a workday. Anything that's information sharing or very kind of routine collaboration and problem solving, you can do that async. Yeah, you introduced me to the walking call and I have used it with numerous people and it's always a big hit. So thank you. That was a revelation. I'm like, I'm sitting in my basement or I'm sitting in my office in my house and it's beautiful outside and I'm feeling kind of like a little anxious or shifty. Like I want to get outside and I'm like, I can, I just take my phone, call the person I'm talking to, walk two miles. I got some exercise, fresh air. And it can, when, when you pitch that idea to somebody, they're like, yes, of course I want to do that. Like, why have I never thought of this? And I'm like, I don't know. We're just, <laughs> we're just used to this being on a Zoom call all the time phenomenon. You bring up such a good point though, because I think that's what folks are experiencing in a work environment. We're used to commuting. We're used to going to an office to do work. Many of us went to college and you didn't do work in a library. You did work in your dorm room. You did work on the, on the lawn. We've all already experienced what it's like to work remotely when we were students. And that was very natural. Nobody talked about it. Nobody needed to teach us how to do it. I jumped into digital nomading world and learned to be a remote worker all by myself. But I needed support from teams to teach me. I was a contractor for an organization and they taught me about Trello, project management tool. Blew my mind. It was the coolest thing. And then also Slack. My friend at Comcast uses Slack for our book club. Uh, we call it boring book club. We, we read uh, nonfiction books and talk about them, but we have a Slack channel for our friend group. Async has actually benefited me personally as well. I was 
traveling and in Japan, but I could still participate in my friend conversations because we were using Slack and we were running a Zoom book club. We can apply async everywhere. And I think that's the biggest misconception is that only remote workers or tech companies can use this practice, but it really benefits everyone. Yeah, I think we've listed in the course of this conversation, three or four, maybe more benefits of remote and asynchronous work. I'd love to just list them one by one, because I think there's the obvious ones. And then there's this whole slew of less obvious ones, especially for people that are in particular life circumstances or have particular things going on. So I mean, off the top of my head, the obvious benefits are what you already mentioned. It's autonomy, it's better efficiency, it's actually figuring out what outputs and performance is desirable and measuring that in a different way. Then you've got, as a company, you can attract talent from all over the country or all over the world, depending on how your company is set up. So you also get a, a different diversity of sort of perspectives if you do that. Um, yes. You're also you're also getting rid of a commute. So you're you know, there's an environmental piece there as well as just a huge time savings. I remember commuting in grad school an hour both ways to my job. It was two hours of my day. This was even before I didn't even have a smartphone. So I was just sitting on the train for 45 minutes and then walking over to the office building and then going in the office and working on the computer <laughs> the entire time with the door shut usually, or maybe someone would come in every hour or two, but it was unbelievable how much wasted time there was. So those are those are some of, I think, the most common ones. What else, what other benefits are there for people? I've spoken to and read a lot about folks that are neurodiverse, certainly parents, caretakers, people that have disabilities. A lot of times, and this is true in the design world too, if we create any kind of components that are going to lead to more accessibility, I think that creates so much more access and inclusion for individuals. So especially if you're thinking about async first work, there's less stress about, okay, I'm required to be on a Zoom meeting. I have this hybrid job. I'm going home to my house, but I'm out in the country or I, I'm in an environment where I don't have access to great bandwidth. If you're practicing async first, you're relying on documentation and it just, it becomes possible for all different types of people to access fabulous organizations that might not be located in their hometown, or they need to pick up their kids at 3.30 in the afternoon. And you're just cutting out all of this unnecessary stress. Absolutely. I'm, as a parent myself, I can speak to that and just say, I do a lot of good work oftentimes from something like nine or 10 PM until midnight or sometimes even later. And, you know, sometimes I use like schedule send. So people aren't getting emails from me at, you know, like two in the morning or something like that. If it's somebody that I have a good relationship with, I'll just send it. And they know that like we work late at night. I was on LinkedIn the other night chatting with someone who's also a parent and it was in the wee hours. And I was like, we're both in this like deep work phase. That's like after the kids are in bed, the house is quiet. I've done a lot of my best writing and work in that time frame, And in the traditional model, that that wouldn't have been accessible to me. I mean, I, I could have made the time and then done that, but it wasn't part of the model. That's another just simple, I think, concept is that shifting the deep work into times when it works in your day. Some people do really early morning before their day gets doing going. Some people do like a chunk in the middle of the day. Some people like I tend to do the later nights. And then I think another benefit, we touched on this, but just retention. When someone feels like they're trusted, when someone feels like they have flexibility and autonomy, when someone feels like there's a good support structure in their organization, they're likely to stay. And I've talked to dozens of people that say, my work I could do elsewhere and maybe there's more money in another job or maybe there's more growth potential, but my team is great and I'm trusted and I'm doing good work. And like, that's going to keep me here 
essentially forever, you know? So I think from a long-term strategic standpoint of an organization, it makes so much sense to build this stuff in. Even if you don't need to be remote, just because it builds that culture and that, it's almost counterintuitive. Like by being remote and building a trust-based organization, you become closer knit. I mean, there's people that I've only met once or twice that I'm like very close with, that I'm way closer with than people that I worked in an office with for months or even years. It's such a good point. All right. So shifting gears a little bit, let me look at my questions. You've touched on so many things that I want to circle back to. But one thing that I'm interested in is how people learn. And as a career coach, I've thought about this a lot over time. What really sticks for people? What really creates like lasting impact in the way people people learn? And I have some of my own theories, but I'm curious to start with yours based on all of your experience. How do you create, whether it's instructional content or a learning experience or in your coaching, what makes things stick for people and what really moves the needle? Because I think in in any kind of learning or teaching, it's about what moves the needle, right? That's what we talk about. I use that term so much, it's cliche at this point, but it's like, we say a lot of things that we've read about and we've thought about, and it just bounces off and the person, it doesn't actually penetrate into their like mind necessarily. And so like, how do we not talk at people and do things that resonate and then lead to action? Sorry, that was like a very long question, but hopefully (laughs) made sense. And I think what you're speaking to is also reflected in the language of the term instructional design and why a lot of people use the term learning design now, because we're going from instructor having the knowledge to the learner creating knowledge. And so language is always foundational when you're diving into something new, whether it's a new practice behavior that you want to change in an organization and being very clear about terms and even defining them as a collective. So if you're a manager and you're going to start a new process, for example, maybe you want to trial blended meetings and you want to assign pre-work and you want to assign post-work in order to shorten these long meetings. You would need to define for everyone, what is a blended meeting? What is pre-work? What is post-work? What is sync? What is async? Because otherwise everybody's nodding their heads and smiling, but have no idea what you're talking about. So once there's alignment on language, putting into practice new habits before you spend so much time learning, I think is important. You don't have context for what you're doing. I didn't take a course on learning design until I'd been a learning designer for many years. So that's just my personal approach and philosophy is Try something first, get a little dirty, get into it. So for example, for podcasting, you might be jumping into a podcast, but then after having tried out a podcast or two, you're going to get so much more out of the articles that you read about best practices because you're like, okay, now I understand the structure and the context. So yes, you might need, if you're brand new to a topic, you might, if you've never run a meeting before, you would probably need to read an article about how do I run an effective virtual meeting? And so it can be helpful to have those how-to steps, but trying out with very small actions, taking an approach and then going back and revisiting. So it's these little loops, these little cycles, and that very much is an agile process where you're trying things out, experimenting, and then getting feedback, making modifications. So in a organization environment, I really enjoy when my clients are willing to complete projects, go try things, and then come back to discuss debrief, and then we can continue to learn and grow. Plus, I think individuals get more excited when it becomes part of their life and part of their work, and they've tried something, then they want to learn about it. So for me, a lot of times the learning comes after the experience. Absolutely. That's the thing that I keep coming back to is I can tell someone something like we know that networking and putting yourself out there is one of the most important things on a job search, for example, or just in life in general. 
and I say that in like 10 different ways to somebody over the course of our conversations. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they come back to me eventually and they say, hey, I reached out to somebody. They agreed to chat. They had all these great ideas. It was totally like mind blowing and amazing. And I'm like, now you feel it in a visceral way that's very different than just like in an academic way. And so any way where I can force people to just show up and start to experience it for themselves, it's so much better. And then community is, so for me, it's experiential things and community-based things are the two things that really drive learning in my experience. So when you feel accountability to a group or supported by a group, or you just get the diversity of perspectives from a group, it helps so much. So I've been running design hackathons with the students that I work with. So they have like a project with a deadline and a group and a sense of accountability and some level of shared reality and kind of mission. And it's been a really incredible experience. A lot of times you don't need to create too much structure. It's almost like if you were running an open mic night, you just have to like get the venue, get the time, get the mic, and then just fill in a bunch of people. And who knows how it'll go? Like different people will do different things and bring different perspectives and it'll take on a life of its own. So I think when learning can take on a life of its own, that's really neat. I've seen people be like, that project was great. I'm collaborating with this person on this new project. And it made me think of this other idea. So the less stale it can be and unidirectional, like you were mentioning, when it becomes an ecosystem of learning, I'm obsessed with biology metaphors and like ecosystem ideas for learning because I think it's really important that there be that symbiotic relationship where everyone's learning from everyone and there's these unexpected things that arise out of it. And paying attention to where your learning is coming from. I've had two conversations lately where people have been surprised that their peers or folks that have a lower job title than them are older. And I know I experienced this with career changers. Folks get really attached to titles in a work environment. And sometimes they feel a bit insecure or unsure if they have more experience, but a lower title than someone else or age. You know, if you're a, a, a new grad from school, but you just graduated, you are learning the most cutting edge information. So of course you have more knowledge. It doesn't feel like it. And people do put this reliance on experience, right? And they say, I know how it's done here and I know how it's done in my industry, but learn from your new grads because they're coming in with brand new information that you never learned because it didn't exist. As I get older, I'm realizing that all these terms that I thought were really cliche are actually really meaningful. <laughs> like everyone has a unique perspective is like, it's so broad that it almost doesn't mean anything. But then you realize, no, everyone very literally has a unique perspective. Like they have different experiences. No two people even in the same family have the same perspective. But it's something where you have to step back and understand what it means a little deeper before you can start to realize everybody on this team has something to contribute. Like you hear those kinds of things thrown a lot around a lot and you're like, I think people often are like, yeah, but so-and-so is really like the value producer and there's this idea. And then you're like, well, when we stop and think about it, we have a diversity of identity and experience and education and innovation comes from the whole. It doesn't come from individual people. And also just for a collective sense of, like I said, shared vision or mission, if everyone has contributed a little piece to something, then they feel more ownership of it and therefore they feel like more intrinsically motivated to work on that thing. I think this is sort of a segue into somewhere I wanted to get into, which is one of the things that I struggle with sometimes as a career coach is 
coaching someone and then they go and work for some kind of like nameless, faceless capitalist corporation and they're not necessarily doing <laughs> good in the world. And you're like, OK, I helped that person and maybe they're making more money or maybe they have a career path. But I don't want to like give up on my ethics. If they go work for big oil, is that a win as a career coach? You know, if they go work for a, some someone that makes bombs, is that like a win as a career coach? And so I'm curious how you, I know in some of your education, you did like work on social justice and ethics. And I'm curious how you uh, insert or inject ethics into the work that you do and how you try to build some of some of that perspective for people, because that's really important to me. And I'm, you know, somewhere that I want to dig into more over the course of my career. So my short answer is yes, it is ethical. And I'll tell you why it's because when you're a career coach, my philosophy is you're there to serve the individual and they define their own reality in terms of ethics. I believe in cultural relativism. Everybody comes with a different set of values and they define ethics for themselves. And so as a coach, you're there to provide the resources, support, guidance to help that individual achieve their own goals. And those goals might change and develop, and maybe they don't want to work at this organization in the future, and they want to maybe go for a nonprofit. It was actually, I had a student who came from the nonprofit world and was studying business. And she said, I want to be with an organization that generates its own value and doesn't require going to donors and fundraisers, who knows where they got their money, but it's pure with a startup. And that was like mind blowing to me. And of course, I'm sure, you know, as a coach, you learn everything from your students. So for me, I actually see so much of my work when I was working at Temple University at the Fox School of Business as a career coach. Some students were low SES, socioeconomic status. Some students were coming from families where, you know, this was the first time education was available to them this generation, they might've been a first generation or second generation student. So the access to working in a fortune 500 company was incredibly empowering for this individual. It was going to change their life. It's going to change their family's lives and their children's lives. So I think there's very much an element of kind of building up communities by pursuing even a corporate job. So I felt very strongly that it was my, my intention was to help the individual achieve their own goals. And of course, I've been thinking a lot about female abundance and specifically black female abundance. We just celebrated Juneteenth and not to date this podcast, but I was writing to a colleague from grad school and we were reflecting and she's a woman of color and we were reflecting on a couple TikTok posts and Instagram posts where it said black women or women go out, earn money, get big salaries right? This is you stepping into that space of abundance. And I think it really ties into all the social justice work that we talk about every day. Just, it is an interesting, you have to think around all these different points a bit and think about to whom does it benefit? Yeah. You brought up cultural relativism and I always kind of go back and forth. And (laughs) that that topic is very interesting because I feel like there's a certain threshold where we shouldn't be relativistic in the way we think if we're talking about something like atrocities, genocides, but then where does that, there's a point where it becomes a gray area. There's a hard line for murder, rape, genocide, slavery, trafficking, all that sort of stuff. But then there's 
a point where you're like, well, there's things that happen in other societies that are different. Maybe it has to do with gender. Maybe it has to do with race. Maybe it has to do with class. And where is that line? Especially if you're an outsider for, from a different identity or a different country or something like that. And that's a really tough one and a really interesting one, especially in such a globalized world that we live in. Yes. Educating your team or students about the perspectives of under of other individuals is so important to this because I think there can be a lot of conflict that comes when people are not recognizing the complete differences. There's this fabulous book called The Culture Map. And I think it was written maybe almost 10 years ago, but I continue to refer to it. It's by Aaron Meyer. And if you are working on a global team or with international students, it's a must read. And there's a couple articles where you can get a quick snapshot of it as well if you're not going to dive into the book. But yeah, it's you do need to recognize the varying perspectives and how people work, communicate, learn. I think when I was younger, I was less of a cultural relativist. I felt like I had these very strongly held beliefs and this was the right way we should build a better society. And over time, I've realized even if I still believe those things, and I mostly do, I think there's been some evolution in my thinking. I think that the only way to move forward is still going to be to create more understanding and build bridges. Even if maybe there's someone on your team and they have a belief that you really don't agree with, and you maybe even think is just objectively wrong from your own viewpoint, but the demonization is not going to take you anywhere or cutting that, you know, and of course there's there, once again, you have to de decide where that line is. And I think this is what social media is running into with moderation. It's like, where does the belief become so fringe that it's actually not allowed as part of the discussion? Is someone allowed to say X, Y, or Z thing and who ultimately decides? And I've been really grappling with this in conversations with friends and colleagues about maybe there's someone that comes from a different perspective. And a lot of it has to do with education level. If somebody didn't go to college or they didn't have a lot of like experiences globally and they just don't have that level of worldliness or maybe they're really young and they don't have a lot of life experience and they have some beliefs that maybe you're like, this is offensive or this is problematic. You're like, just cutting them out of the conversation or writing them off is probably not going to do anybody any good, even though it's uncomfortable if you're like, ooh, that that is a term that is, you know, offensive to people, or that is a, an idea that I bristle when I hear it. And so I guess for me, it partially through coaching and talking to hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of several years, I've realized like the best way is just to get into a conversation, even if it's really uncomfortable territory on some of these kind of like hot button issues. So yeah, that's just, that's something that occupies a inordinate amount of my mental space. <laughs> I think about that frequently. I know. And creating space and in, within yourself to allow other people to share their perspective is actually not as simple as it sounds because, you know, we do need to take care of ourselves first. There's a lot of conversation around self-care out there, but if you are not in a emotionally stable place, or if you're not um, feeling calm and control in your life for whatever reason, so much is going on. It's very difficult to hold space for others. But I, I think to your point, that is what brings people to closer together. That is how we understand folks from different cultures, different backgrounds, different perspectives is simply listening. And 
I talk a lot about active listening. So especially in a remote environment, people don't always feel heard because we're so detached and I've never met you in real life. But if every person would improve their listening skills, and sometimes it's reading, right? In an async environment, we do need to read very carefully or ask clarifying questions or hold space for someone to re-explain or share. Let's talk through this idea a little bit further so that we can understand each other. I do think if we are going to be saving time with async first practices and, you know, shifting some of our work to be more efficient, that's what we should be doing with the extra time that we freed up. That synchronous time is holding space for each other. That's such a great point. And I, I keep coming back to this. I've been posting out on LinkedIn here and there. There's things at the individual level that then can ripple up or I don't know what the right word is, but they can be applicable at different scales. And it's that idea of someone being heard and feeling understood, which is something that I didn't understand adequately until more recently myself. Just saying like, yeah, got it is not <laughs> for someone. It's just acknowledgement is not True. the same as feeling understood. So if you pour your heart out to me about something and then I'm just like, yeah, totally, I get it. And then I move on. The chance that you feel truly heard or you feel like it mattered to me or you feel like the level of seriousness has been conveyed or received is probably not. Yes, probably not true. So it's more about reflecting back, restating it and creating like sort of like an interwoven map of meaning between the two people, right? Where it's like, you said it back to me in your own words, and that showed that you processed it and said it back. And that, that always like earlier in my life seemed so cheesy. Like you no. just, you just said these things and then I just say them back. But you're like in, in that translation, that's where the meaning gets made because you said A, B, and C, and I said A, B, and C back, but it was a little different. So you knew it was authentic. And then you said yes. And then there was this chance to like, tell me what I missed or to like, that's not quite what I meant, or that was a little exaggerated. Actually, I should dial it back or whatever. And then you create that shared meaning. I think creating shared sense of meaning and reality whether it's coaching, whether it's professionally, whether it's just interpersonally is something I've, I've been learning a lot about and uh, is, I think it's, it's the answer to most problems within an organization, within a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And if we're thinking very, in a very grandiose manner, even in society, we're seeing the same dynamic play out with whether it's Republicans and Democrats or people on two sides of a particular issue. It's like, we have our points and we say them, you have your points and we say them, we're totally talking past one another and we're missing the overlap or the common ground that like at the end of the day, all people share. The vast majority of experience is shared between all people. And I think a lot of what you said comes from this therapeutic approach to conversation. I don't know if you ever listened to Esther Perel's podcast, but she is, oh yeah, she is my favorite. She has a podcast. I think it's called housework. And then she also has couples counseling podcast, but a tremendous role model, I think of, of for communication. And really I, when I was a career coach, people always say, I feel like I'm in therapy. And I'm like, that's because I do nothing except listen to therapists talk all day long, whether it's my own therapy appointments. And certainly now, um, something I love about TikTok is people will go to therapy, hop on TikTok, and then record what they just experienced in the therapy session. And we haven't talked about TikTok yet, but as a learning tool, as a teaching tool, you can't beat it. I just read a post somewhere on the internet that said, 
people are using TikTok now as their search engine. They're not going to Google, but Gen Z is hopping on TikTok. Hey, my toilet's broken. Where do I, how do I repair this? And TikTok can get it faster. That's been a fascinating evolution. And I know the pandemic spurred a lot of us to go to our phones, but specifically to TikTok for that connection, for that place to, to relate to one another. I just read an article that said, I'll have to find it. I think it's called like Google is dying or something about how the Google search engine is becoming less effective over time. And people are resorting to these other methods, like you just mentioned with TikTok, to find information that's more authentic or coming from real people. Because as there's more advertising driving things, you're getting like just junk content that's not really like real or authentic or genuine, or there's this ulterior motive. And so people are, one thing I saw is people are just, I think it's in the article, people are just typing their query in Google, and then they're adding the word Reddit after it, because they want to go into a Reddit I want to see Reddit. What is Reddit going to tell me? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. prepping to go on a trip to Glacier, and my husband's going to Reddit to get a sense of, well, what is it like today? Not what some marketer wanted me right. to read about exactly. from this travel blog, but today, what's happening in Glacier? Are there avalanches? Do we have to worry about smoke from fires? What's happening? I think that phenomenon is happening, and that's what this article talks about, is happening in a broad scale where people are like, can we cut through the BS and get me like someone with on-the-ground experience that really is dealing with this? And yeah. Which is what a career coach actually provides. And I think that's why people continue to be drawn. This is the balance of sync and async though, right? Students, learners, new employees, they want a person who cares about them specifically and understands their needs. And then the hard balance of that is we know as coaches, as managers, the questions that people are asking are actually repetitive. So going back to what you were saying, like how do you create this community of information and access to information and resources? So it's not the expert having to give the guidance, but it's actually peers supporting each other. Yeah, I think we should probably wrap it up or I could just keep you here all day and (laughs) riff on a whole number of topics. But two final points. One is where's the best place for people to find you if they want to hear more of your ideas and learn from you? And then also, what are some of your recommended other resources that people should go check out to keep digging into these topics more? I hang out a lot on LinkedIn. So you're welcome to search Katie Scheuer, S-C-H-E-U-E-R. And for content the Workplaceless blog is phenomenal. So it's Workplaceless and Doist as well. Both of these organizations have tremendous information about uh, remote work, async work, productivity, really fabulous. And then I also mentioned GitLab's handbook. So those places, and I know you could probably link to some of the others that we mentioned already, but also people. I think Darren Murph, um, Chase Warrington, Tom McCormick. (laughs) (laughs) These are the people that you want to be following if you're going to learn about remote and async work, for sure. Yeah, for everybody listening, definitely follow Katie. She's a fountain of knowledge and continuing to build her knowledge every day. And I just want to thank you for taking time to chat about all these topics. I already have ideas for things we could discuss on future episodes. So thanks for spending part of your day with me. And I hope folks listening have gotten some, you know, useful tidbits out of this. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. I would love that. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks, Katie.